This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is John Ramo, and I'm a host on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Carla Hubner on her new monograph, Magnetic Woman, Toying in the Surrealist Erotic, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2020. Professor Hubner is Professor of Art History and Affiliate Faculty in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program at Wright State University. She is also the current president of the Czechoslovak Studies Association, and the author of numerous articles on visual culture, gender and sexuality, periodical culture, and more in Central European contexts. Finally, Professor Hubner is a novelist and creative writer herself, with new work set to appear shortly with Regal House. Professor Hubner's work indeed shows a keen artistic, literary, and historical eye in her study of the Czech artist Marie Cherminova, better known as Toyin. Born in 1902 and passing away in 1980, the Czech surrealist Toyin experienced a tumultuous century in full. Her life and art reflected various international avant-garde movements in Czechoslovakia's First Republic and in post-war Paris. As Hubner demonstrates in Magnetic Woman, Toyin's ambiguous sexuality complemented a social and artistic fluid- fluidity. Importantly, Toyin spoke in the masculine gender in Czech, while friends and colleagues referred to her in the feminine. That is, Toyin straddled gender in every aspect of her personal life, and so too did her artwork, crossing between different media as much as sexuality and gender. In the interview that follows, we speak of Toyin in the feminine, even as Professor Hoopner discusses how this fundamental ambiguity characterized her eroticism. In her telling, it is Toyin's achievement that this ambiguous eroticism earned her entrance to various cultural, intellectual, and social milieu. Simultaneously, Toyin's eroticism distinguished her life and artwork from her peers and contemporaries. Professor Hubner's expert selection and analyses of Toyin's artwork give equal weight to these accomplishments, yielding a beautifully illustrated monograph. It's my pleasure as a historian and as an art lover to speak with her today. I hope you enjoy our interview. Professor Hubner, thank you so much for speaking with us today on this fascinating book devoted to Mary Cherminova, the wonderful Czech artist both professionally and personally known as Toyin throughout her life from 1902 to 1980. Before we begin speaking about Toyin, however, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about yourself as an art historian, as well as an historian more broadly speaking of Czech culture. What led you, what led you to this field? Well, um, there are a number of different things that kind of led me in this direction. Uh, for one thing, we could say that uh, when I was a kid, I was one of those kids that drew a lot. So people tended to think I was going to become an artist, but I did not go in that direction. Uh, Instead, I went toward writing and uh, somewhat toward theater. But eventually, I began to be writing a lot about art and decided that it was time to go back to school and do a graduate degree. And at first, I thought I might do history because I'm interested in such a wide range of different things. And I looked at, because it was close by, UC Berkeley's offerings in history, and I thought, oh, they all seem to be on political and economic history. 
Uh, those are not the areas of history that interest me tremendously. Maybe I should think about art history. And so um, that kind of led me into ultimately getting my PhD in art history while continuing to be interested in lots of different areas of history. Uh, in terms of Czech culture, uh, I have sort of a family connection, not a genealogical connection to Czechoslovakia, but uh, um, a family friend kind of connection. And so naturally, since not that many people who don't have Czech ancestors are drawn to Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic, uh, that was kind of intriguing to me and I wanted to know more about it. So those are, those are kind of the things that led me in this direction. And now within your studies, how did you first encounter or hear of Toyin? Myself, I heard about her first studying the history of the book, but she seems to be an interesting artist in terms of how often she pops up for people and how they actually encounter her. So what led you to Toyin? Um, I actually encountered Toyin first back in the 90s when I was reading Whitney Chadwick's Women Artists in the Surrealist Movement. This was around the time that I was really starting to write uh, about art. And I was intrigued that here was this um, Czech surrealist, a surrealist woman, somebody that was doing erotica. Um, there were just a lot of different things that, uh, that piqued my interest. And so then later, when I was starting my PhD, um, my advisor, Barbara McCloskey, and I were trying to figure out, well, all right, what exactly is my research topic going to be? We were looking a little bit at Weimar Germany and not finding anything that really grabbed us as not having been done yet. And Barbara said, well, what about that Czech surrealist that you're interested in? Can you do a dissertation on on her, and I said, yeah, um, that would be great. Uh, I'll need to improve my check some, but uh, that's, that's kind of how that went. And I've never regretted it. I've always, always enjoyed the research. It's been, it's been just, you know, really fun learning more, not just about Toyin and the Czech Surrealists, but about Czech modernism and Czech culture more generally. And this is one of the lights of your book, but it really opens up a sort of world around Toyin as well. And it's really a close contextual work that you do, I think, that re reconstructs her various milieu from pre-war Prague to Paris, and then to her career in post-war Paris as well. And in your telling, Toyin seems at times an almost wholly typical figure in terms of a parody with her male colleagues, especially her close collaborator, Jindrich Stierski, in terms of recognition, participation, connectedness, for lack of a better word, and then at times by virtue of her ambiguous sexuality, she seems to occupy a very anom anomalous position at the same time as representing a generation in different ways. And here, I think the virtue of your book rests in how you work within archival constraints of available evidence, persuasive reconstructions of relationships, and then close formal analyses of her artwork. Can you comment a bit then on these dual tensions, that is, Toyin as both representative and unrepresentative in a sense of a generation, milieu, and what can be said and cannot be said in terms of reconstructing her career? Ah, well, I, I think this thing of Toyin being both representative and unrepresentative is, is something that's really important because she's, she's representative in a lot of ways um, in that she's one of a generation of young Czech women uh, growing up at a time when Czech feminism was very strong, when women were getting a lot of new opportunities, when women were starting to enter politics in the Czech lands, uh, even before the formation of Czechoslovakia as a country. And so she's, she's from this generation that is seeing all kinds of, uh, of feminist progress and opportunities for women and uh, you know, more, more opportunities for education and, and jobs and so forth. And so things are really opening up for, for women. And at the same time, um, you know, she's somebody who can really kind of presents herself as gender ambiguous and is known for having spoken in the masculine gender in Czech. Uh, I don't think that, uh, that that was the case for her French-speaking 
but but she was known for speaking in the masculine gender in Czech, which was very surprising to people uh, and would not have been easy for someone to kind of get used to doing if they hadn't been doing that since early childhood. Uh, and also, while Czech women in the 20s and 30s were able to wear trousers and uh, you know wear what would seem as kind of more masculine styled clothing, and in fact in the 1920s there was a lot of uh, you know the, the short hair, the uh, the wearing of pants and so forth, and that was pretty high fashion. Uh, but it was also seen as um, it, it was also seen as, as kind of gender rebellious, and Toyan definitely took that uh, further, and uh, you know with with the uh, the, the ungendered pseudonym. And uh, so that was something that was very non-representative uh, of her generation. Um, she also kind of fits into both in a, in a typical and an atypical way in terms of some of the sexual politics and gender politics of the 20s and 30s uh, and how there's uh, this development in sex education and sex reform uh, in a lot of different countries, including Czechoslovakia. So, so she offers a lot of interesting things in terms of, in terms of this uh, placement of her in an almost entirely male avant-garde group, her acceptance by these male members of the avant-garde group, uh, despite the, I mean, on the one hand, she's not a conventional, uh, a conventional woman. On the other hand, a lot of the, the males in the group are drawn to her and, and you know, kind of have, uh, you know, unrequited uh, attractions to her and so forth. It's, it's really quite, uh, quite interesting and complicated. So those are, those are some of the ways in which I'm seeing her as being both representative and, and very different in her time period, particularly in Czechoslovakia. In France, it's a whole different thing, I think. But, uh, but specifically in Czechoslovakia in the 20s and 30s, that's, um, you know, she's a really interesting example of, of someone who, who comes out of this opening up of sex and gender possibilities and then goes beyond what most people are doing. Now, if there's one thing we all know from studying the avant-garde, it's that male artists and writers leave reams and reams of written text, traces, memoirs. It's a little different with Toyn in this book. Can you describe a little bit about your work with Toyn on both, with what sources you used, secondary as well as archival? And here I would also ask that as you shift throughout your monograph, um, if you could comment a little on how Toyn located herself on several fault lines, generationally, in terms of gender, nationally, linguistically, and also artistically between movements as well as mediums. You touch a little bit on this in the book's first chapter, The Myth of Toyn, as well as a really wonderful accompanying bibliographical essay at the end of the book. So briefly put, it seems that there were archival challenges and also various receptions over time. Would, you, would it be fair to say in this regard that she has posed and continues to pose any unique challenges for scholars? And how would you describe these receptions that you perhaps worked through for your own book. Okay, well, that's that's a, a big chunk of, of stuff to uh, discuss. But first off, I think I would say that uh, I think the challenges that Toyan presented in terms of research were not necessarily all that unique. Um, that yes, there was a paucity of actual texts by Toyin, for instance, when Toyin would send someone a postcard or something, it usually would just be kind of like, uh, uh, you know, signing the postcard or, you know, sort of saying hi, and then signing it with four other people. Um, and then there, there's a little bit of business correspondence about, yes, it will cost you this much if I design you a book plate. Um, but I don't think that that that's unique to Toya. I think there are a lot of cultural figures who, for one reason or another, we don't have a lot of uh, personal materials in terms of texts. And I think that is more common among women artists, especially from earlier periods, not so much for the 20th century, but where uh, as feminist art historians 
starting with the 1970s, really started to excavate the history of, of many of these female artists, that we were exploring them through their contents or con their contacts. Uh, and so looking at you know, their friends, their, um, their neighbors, their relatives, um, finding out what those people said and what they, um, what they thought. And so to a certain extent, that was what I was doing with Toyin. Toyin did not like to write down things, um, but Toyin had friends who were, many of them were writers. And even the ones that were not writers often wrote quite a bit. And so a lot of my investigation of what Toyin might have thought about different things came through reading what her various friends, both male and female, had to say. Uh, so for instance, we can hypothesize some of Toyin's attitudes about 70s and 80s feminism through her friend Annie Lebrun uh, and her writings. We don't know that Toyin's feelings were exactly the same, but they probably had a lot in common. Uh, likewise, some of her ideas about other things, we can look at the writings of Stierski or Karl Taiga, um, Yaroslav Seifert, uh, Vyacheslav Nezval, um, later on, Andre Breton. Obviously, she's not going to agree with everything that her friends had to say. Uh, you know, one doesn't always agree with one's friends on every topic, but I think they do give a give some sense of, uh, of what she might have been thinking on a lot of things. And we want to think, too, about the fact that she, while she didn't write to any extent, uh, she was very much involved in conversations with people. And I'll probably be returning to that again with other questions that you ask. But we know that she did enjoy conversations with, with these various friends. And I don't think people were generally taking notes on what was said. And so this is kind of a, an, an unretrievable um, mass of stuff. So in addition to looking at things that were written by her friends, colleagues, um, other people in the periods and places that, uh, that she was alive, um, I, was, I was also looking at a lot of kind of much more secondary stuff, um, reading a lot of periodicals uh, that were published by various Czechs during the 20s and 30s because the Czechs were just pouring forth endless numbers of periodicals on every topic you could imagine. Uh, so I was looking at uh, you know, popular magazines, uh, women's magazines, uh, literary magazines, uh, some political magazines and newspapers, um, feminist periodicals, um, sex reform periodicals, um, whatever I could run across that seemed like it might possibly shed some light on either Toyin's thinking or on just the world that she was living in. And I'm sure there is way more out there that I did not yet get to, but I looked at a lot of stuff um, from a lot of different perspectives. And, and, and that's something that I would say, you know, for, for people that are just beginning their researches on topics, uh, you know, often a person feels like, oh, you know, I didn't find something on my specific topic. And I would always counsel people, you know, cast a broad net in terms of your researches, because you can find the you know, most unexpected things in the most unexpected places. And uh, you know, not, not narrow, you know, having a narrow research focus is one thing, but, but it's good to have a broad, uh, a broad net to pull in all that useful stuff. So um, moving on from that aspect of the question to how Toyin was received at different times. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, Toyin was kind of seen as one of uh, what Jindrzyk Kalupetsky, one of the major critics who was quite young at that time, uh, thought of as the uh, established uh, avant-garde in Czechoslovakia. Um, so on the one hand, that's not to say everyone liked or was interested in her work, but she was seen as somebody who was one of the kind of one of the movers and shakers in the, the cultural world at that time, uh, that she couldn't be ignored. 
And then once World War II had taken place and she had moved to Paris and was with the, the Paris Surrealist group, then you get into a whole period of when Czechoslovakia had become communist and um, the, on the one hand, some of the, some of the interwar avant-garde had become communist because a lot of them had been already, but much of what was happening in the interwar period was being rejected, particularly things like surrealism, because the post-war communists were really focused more on socialist realism. And uh, so the, the whole surrealist group in Czechoslovakia kind of, kind of got left behind a bit. Uh, there continued to be a Czechoslovak surrealist group, but mostly younger people. And with, I think, kind of a different, you know, instead of being the, the sort of avant-garde that was, was in everybody's view, the, the post-war group is much more an underground group. And so you don't have a whole lot of scholarship uh, in, uh, you know, art criticism and so forth during the communist period in Czechoslovakia dealing with Toyin or the rest of the Prague Surrealist group. Uh, you have some stuff coming up in uh, in French French writing, uh, not a whole lot, uh, and then it's more been in kind of since the Velvet Revolution and the fall of communism that you start having uh, scholars in Czechoslovakia that are looking at the Prague Surrealist group, including Toyin, and then you also have scholars from other countries that uh, are having more access to the uh, the Czech sources, you know, more and more of us are, are learning Czech and, uh, and also people are starting to delve more into the French sources. So um, I don't know that so much that, that viewpoints about Toyin have changed so much as that there's either kind of an avoidance of dealing with surrealism and then other periods when surrealism is, is more seen as an interesting uh, okay topic as opposed to something that people were seeing as, oh, it's outmoded and it's not sufficiently communist or leftist or non-representational or whatever. So you have these fashions in scholarship and more recently surrealism and um, Czech art in general are, are more in fashion than they were for a while. And here your choice of a subject just seems absolutely perfectly suited to just tracking even the role of the place that surrealism had for other artists, how it changed over the course of the 20th century. And speaking of a broad net, uh, I was very impressed with how the book Magnetic Woman masterfully traces various intellectual influences, receptions, as you just discussed, professional and personal relationships, which we've talked upon a, a bit about, visual languages, not only Toyin's, but also those of her collaborator, uh, Shirsky, as well as many Surrealist colleagues. And as I was reading the book, I began to keep a list of the various artistic movements mapping on to Toyin's life and her contexts. We have the, the, the Vietzel group, uh, poetism, artificialism, anticipations of and adoptions of various schools of French Surrealism, Czech Surrealism in turn, French surrealism in the sense that, uh, that it was practiced by Czech artists and writers in Prague, above all, then French surrealism as practiced in Paris, and then in Toyin's case, as you really intriguingly suggest, even hints of pop and op art in her later career, and what you also term a late imagina uh, imaginary of desire, imagery of desire, pardon me. So in broader terms then, is it perhaps possible to characterize Toyin's career in terms of ruptures, breaks, overlapping transitions, continuities? Is there a, a line through her whole career or is it something a little more complicated? Well, I think that in terms of themes, there are definitely themes that really go through her entire career. So for instance, the interest in the erotic, this is something that we see way at the beginning of her career that uh, you know, even before she's really known at all as an artist, she's doing a canvas that is an orgy scene um, and that she continues this interest in the erotic 
throughout the rest of her life. I mean, that, that uh, in her later years in Paris, apparently she went to, uh, to porn films on a regular basis. Um, so, so sexuality in its many forms is, is a big theme throughout her art, um, throughout her life, but it shows up in different ways at different periods in her art. And there are, there are times when it's less visible in her art. So that's one of the things that there is continuity in, uh, even though stylistically there's not a continuity for that. Um, also, I'm finding, and this is something that I really did not go into in the book, but that I'm starting to look at a little bit more, is the use of um, various kinds of esoteric ideas in her art. Uh, the French Surrealists post-war became much more involved in that, uh, and, and definitely some of them were seeing her as, as an artist who made works that even could be considered as initiatory. But I'm thinking that even in her early work during the artificialist period, that we start to get some hints of that. Um, that's something I can't discuss quite as much at this point. I'm, I'm working on a conference paper that I'm gonna give um, in November that deals a bit more with this, but that's something that I'm seeing as possibly something that is also a continuity in her work. Uh, now, stylistically, she definitely has different stages. Uh, so, you know, very early on, we, we see her doing work that, you know, is clearly influenced by what she was studying in school and, you know, learning about cubism and so forth, purism. Uh, there's not a lot of that, but, uh, but then she goes through this period that's often referred to as, as her primitivist work uh, that's, that's more focused on ideas from popular culture and, and naive art. Again, that's not something that lasts real long, but there's maybe more work relating to that. And then she and Stiersky come up with this two-person movement called artificialism, which kind of comes under the umbrella of the Deviatsil group and poetism. But Deviatsil is a big group. Um, it, it had many different currents throughout its approximately 10-year lifespan. Uh, members of the Deviatsil group did a lot of different things, didn't all agree with one another on, on different stuff. Um, so you could kind of say that artificialism is part of Deviatsil, and it's also in some ways not. And with artificialism, they're coming close to surrealism, but they're claiming that they're not surrealists. Um, they're very much involved in a lyrical kind of abstraction, uh, dealing with memory and reflection, but not direct representation of memories. They're really trying to get, kind of start with memories and then go far away from them. And then they, they move more towards surrealism and decide to become surrealists in 1934. And then Toyan's work shifts somewhat stylistically and in terms of subject matter. And we start seeing a lot of imagery of phantoms and ghosts and cracking and fissuring. And, um, and then as time goes on, you know, again, she changes styles as she's exploring different things. Um, I mean, she's a very diverse artist in terms of her, in terms of her working with medium, in terms of her stylistic choices at different times in her life. I mean, she's someone that's not purely a painter in terms of her artistic pursuits. She's also a printmaker, uh, draftsman, um, worked in collage. Um, I mean, basically a, a variety of different two-dimensional media. And at the same time, she didn't really like to be described as a painter. She thought of herself, and I think Stiersky did as well for both of them, as poets who happen to work in visual media. Uh, that's something that I think comes, really comes out from their artificialist manifestos. And I think is something that, that really continues to be the case for Toyan. She's very tied into poetry and poem, uh, poets and that she is producing these, these poems in a visual form. Uh, but yeah, um, there are periods when, when her work has um, formal, links to, um, to various different movements that were happening like, um, like abstract expressionism and, uh, and op art and pop art. Um, she's certainly not part of any of those movements, but, but she's, she's certainly doing some things in terms of form that, that have relationships. 
so yeah, I think I think in terms of topics, uh, you have a lot of different continuities stretching throughout her life, but in terms of the, the formal choices, uh, she has really distinct different periods of time. And so just to continue with this idea of rupture, continuity, changing, uh, something reading the book, that's, I had the impression of a very protein group of people surrounding Toyin who were all changing almost in unison, or at least responding to different um, kind of common pressures, ideas, almost at the same time. So much as in Paris, everybody seemed to know everybody in Prague, at least more on the political left of Toyin's generation. And beginning with the Vietzel group, Toyin also seems to have kept really the same network of friends and colleagues, albeit, which was rather curious to me, very few direct competitors as such. And what's similarly curious for me is that the same cohort of personnel of Czech figures, literary, literary figures, artists, in the main cycle through these various movements you just mentioned, albeit with a few breaks, a few vicious debates, uh, it wouldn't be an avant-garde without vicious debates from time to time. And here, I'd like to just ask you to comment a little further on Toyn's, her position in the avant-garde uh, as an artist responding to, collaborating with other figures. And is it even appropriate to speak of a growing independence or break, say, especially once we look at her post-war career in France? Okay. Um, I think first off, I want to say that the um, cultural world in Prague, and for that matter, Bohemia and Moravia more generally, because we don't want to leave out the city of Brno in Moravia, which was also a very uh, culturally active city. Um, Toyan was part of the Devietzil group, which had members in both of those cities, um, and, and for that matter, elsewhere in, in Czechoslovakia. Um, but there were also, not, not only was Devietzil a, um, a very big and very diversified group of people working in a lot of different areas. I mean, you have people that are writers, you have people that are visual artists, you have theater people, you have journalists, uh, you have musicians, um, you know, kind of, kind of every creative pursuit under the sun, architects. Uh, but then outside of the Devietzil group, you also have other groups. Um, that are not necessarily considered so avant-garde, but that are definitely modernist. And so, yeah, I mean, people tended to know each other. Um, they, they definitely did not always agree with one another. Um, but I would say that, yeah, Toyin is, is very central in a lot of this, that uh, she clearly um, was involved in a lot of different circles of friendships and uh, collaborators. She was interested in, in friendship and collaboration. And that really becomes evident uh, in terms of surrealism as well. But it, it certainly is already the case with Devietzil um, where she's, she's hanging out with a lot of different people and, uh, and it is you know, certainly closer to some than to others, but I'm, I'm sure we'll also discover friendship links that I'm not aware of. Um, I mean, I was, I was quite interested to, to find photographs of her with people that, uh, that I hadn't realized she was you know, going out for drinks with and so forth. Um, but um, I don't know that I would so much say that, that she becomes independent of these Czechoslovak artistic and intellectual circles when she moves to Paris in the 40s, so much as that she is separated from them. Um, that uh, she and Yinvashik Heisler, her, her second artistic partner, uh, left Czechoslovakia uh, as Czechoslovakia was kind of in the process of going communist. And while she had some contacts uh, continuing with, with friends from within Czechoslovakia. Um, I think it's really a, a shift for her, not so much necessarily a intentional separation, but that, you know, she's gone to a whole different country uh, that is also experiencing a lot of ups and downs in terms of strikes and, uh, you know, difficulties post-war. Uh, she can't really get, uh, you know, her money as I understand it, out of Czechoslovakia. So she uh, is, is not in a very good situation financially. Stierski had died during the war. Um, I think there are a lot of things that, you know, where um, for those of us that are old enough to have different periods in our lives with different groups of friends, um, we'll, we'll kind of understand that 
it isn't even necessarily that you leave behind or separate yourself from something in your past as that at a certain point, you're just in a different place, uh, whether emotionally or physically or both, and that you're dealing with your current life. And you may still care about your past life, but it's, it's not there, it's not present in the same way. Um, I, I will always remember as I was getting ready to go off for graduate school, going for a walk with a friend from one of my writing groups who I'd known for a fair number of years at that point. And I, I mentioned something or other uh, that related to my life before we had been in that writing group together. And, and she kind of reacted with great surprise and was kind of like, well, why have you hidden this from us? And I'm kind of like, well, I never didn't, you know, I never hid it from you. It just wasn't part of my life in the time that, that I've known you. Um, and I suspect that some of that is, is what was happening for Toyin uh, once, uh, once Toyin settled in Paris and was getting involved with this new group of, uh, of surrealists that, well, and, and then also she had political rifts with some of the people that she left behind, but also some of the people that were from the Paris group that split off uh, like Eloard. Um, that, that decided, you know, that they were more interested in uh, in communism than they were in surrealism. So there are there are a lot of different reasons, I think, for uh, for for this real difference in when she's living in Czechoslovakia prior to moving to Paris permanently. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Now to continue a little bit on the lines of French culture uh, and also literature, something that really superbly impressed me reading the monograph Magnetic Woman was just how carefully documented the, how intertwined art and literature were in interwar Prague, even apart from the later engagements with surrealism with Toyin's friends and, and, and her groups. And you very clearly demonstrate throughout the book these common resonances, direct lines of influence, and more. And this particularly extends to French figures such as the Marquis de Sade, Baudelaire, Lautremont, Rambeau, Afrajari, Apollinaire, with Chopek's translation of his own being critical, it seemed, for her entire generation, as well as Freud and even certain German romantics. And here, the historian in me wanted to ask, how much did you uncover of Toyn's reading habits? What did you learn about her encounters with the French language? Were there any sort of archival traces here that were able to kind of lead you in certain directions? Or really, how did you kind of uh, uh, attack that problem of what was in the air, really? in terms of kind of literature for Toyin? That's a great question. Uh, on the one hand, I don't know precisely what Toyin read, but I have a pretty good idea of a lot of it uh, because while Toyin was not much for writing, Toyin was clearly an extensive reader. Toyin was very, very plugged into poetry in particular. Uh, so many of Toyin's friends were poets uh, some of them contributed the names to some of her major works. And so uh, I think it is clear that, that Toyin was reading a lot and probably discussing a lot of this poetry and, and for that matter, other things that she may have read with writer friends. So for instance, Stirsky uh, was working on a biography of the Marquis de Sade. Um, she would have been discussing that with him, I am quite sure. Um, he, also, he also wrote uh, about other French writers. Um, she's in this very, very um, literary conscious milieu. And certainly, um, while on the one hand, uh, my understanding is that her French was rather idiosyncratic, um, she clearly understood French quite well. Um, I mean, she lived in Paris in the 20s for a few years with Stirsky, um, and then she spent the second half of her life there and was involved with all kinds of, of poets within the, um, 
within the Paris Surrealist group and that were associated with the Paris Surrealist group and collaborated with them. So I think, um, I think we can say that Twain was very well read. We just don't know precisely what beyond some of the, the really obvious uh, figures that, that I think there is gonna be no question that she read. Um, we, um, we can say that you know, she definitely could read in Czech, she could read in, in French. I would guess that she also could read in German uh, because in interwar Czechoslovakia, we still have a, a very large German speaking ethnic population, but as to the extent to which she spoke or read German, that I don't know, um, because you get different attitudes among the Czechs as to whether they really want to explore German. Uh, but the, the Czechs were very, uh, there was a very strong interest in, in French culture among the Czechs because, and, and here, I don't want to go too much into the sort of Czech-German uh, cultural history. This is something that a lot of my colleagues in, in uh, Czech history uh, discuss in their books. And I, so I would encourage people to read books by, uh, by many of my, my colleagues like Chad Bryant and Tara Zara, Jeremy King, and so forth. Um, I mean, you have this, on the one hand, uh, Czechs who are very, um, very Czech nationalist in terms of their language and their linguistic ideas, and then others who are clearly, you know, very bilingual and bicultural. And uh, so without knowing for, for sure more with Toyan specifically, I don't know to what extent she read or sought out work in German, but certainly, certainly Czech and French. And uh, I think she was very well read, at least in terms of poetry. And now sticking with the French theme for a little while uh, longer, you paint a, a very, uh, just a, a really fascinating depiction of an early Parisian interval in Toyn's career from 1928 to 1929. And here you trace a confluence of different social scenes, galleries, magazines, and publishers, all really linked by sexual identifications with lesbianism. And now even as Toyn's sexuality remains very ambiguous throughout her life, uh, and very purposefully so, as you prove, the alternative intellectual and institutional models here seem important for her in contrast to Prague. So can you tell us a little more here about how Toyn experienced Paris and Prague when there was still a, mo a moment of kind of moving between the two? Well, I think that on the one hand, in Paris in the 20s, there was, there was a pretty significant lesbian cultural scene uh, the extent to which Toyan participated in this is not known, at least not to me, but the fact that you have uh, major cultural figures like whether it's, um, whether it's Gertrude Stein and her salon, which was fairly multilingual, or Natalie uh, Clifford Barney and her salon, which was more French speaking. Um, you also have writers like Colette who are clearly more you know, in the bisexual back and forth uh, kind of realm. Uh, and then you have various, uh, you know, um, various lesbian bars and gay and lesbian bars and, and, and so forth. Um, so I think that you know, this, was, this was at least in Paris fairly out in the open for people. Um, not to say that it was always well regarded by the majority of the French citizenry, but that, um, but that at least for a time it was, it was something that you could easily find if you were looking for it. Um, in, back in Prague, I don't know that it was quite as, uh, as visible in the 20s. Uh, this is something that requires a little more investigation from scholars. Uh, we are finding definitely that by the 1930s, uh, you've got the... Uh, the development of a primarily gay male, but but open to lesbian uh, contributors like Lida Merlinova, uh, the uh, the publications Class and Novi Class or Voice and New Voice, um, and there's there's definitely there's definitely a lot of uh, interest in again kind of within the context of what was known as sex reformism, um, making 
making laws better for gay and lesbian people and people of other, other what were known as sexual minorities. And so by the 30s, that's definitely something that's going on in Czechoslovakia as well. Uh, so I think both, both Prague and Paris are places where this is going on, but it might be, might be going on uh, in, in terms of social life, maybe a little more earlier in Paris, but we need to you know, delve more into the uh, situation in Czechoslovakia because it's, it's clearly happening there too. I mean, Luda Merninova, who was a, uh, a novelist and uh, uh, she, she definitely was, was writing books that uh, at least some of them could be kind of considered lesbian novels or uh, read with a lesbian eye. Um, so, you know, she's, she's someone that's definitely part of that scene. And now to perhaps finally turn to the art, as you've been so patient discussing all of these contexts and historical uh, sort of fields around Toyin. To begin with just your critical language as an art historian, you draw a really fascinating linkage in the book between, and you also apply, a sort of Freudian semiotics, especially of Unheimlich or Uncanny, the Prague uh, linguistic circle around Jakobsen, Prague structuralism, a Prague school of semiotics, and finally, really intriguingly as well, Roger Caillois series of mimicry. And I found your critical language in the book wholly persuasive, yet here as an historian reading an art history, I'd like to ask you if you reflected on using this a sort of period critical language to treat Toyn as well. To perhaps rephrase this in a little, little more of a blunter manner, did Toyn herself read any of these schools of thoughts and analysis? And how did you reflect on this as you were looking at the actual uh, art that she produced? Okay, I don't know to what extent Toyn was reading some of the theory, but what I can say is that I know that friends of hers, such as Karl Taiga and Stirsky and Bohuslav Brok, um, were definitely reading and writing a lot of this stuff. Um, and the, the Prague Surrealist group, uh, its members were close to the people in the uh, Prague linguistic circle. So, you know, they were friends with uh, Jakobsen and Mukarshovsky, uh, people like that. And so I think whether or not Toyin was directly sitting down and reading psychoanalysis or reading uh, Jakobsen and, and Mukarashovsky's theories, um, she was definitely involved in talking about them. Uh, she, she's in this milieu where, where people, people are finding conversation really, you know, they're, they're sitting in cafes talking on a regular basis. And uh, so she may have read some of this. I just, I mean, I know that Stirsky was definitely reading Otto Rank and Freud and, you know, I mean, this is all in the air at this time. Um, and so whether or not she was directly reading it, um, she would have been talking about it. And given the fact that the, um, that the Prague Linguistic School members were close to the Prague Surrealists, I would guess that probably some of the theory is is developing in the minds of people like Jakobsen and uh, Mukarshovsky as a result of speaking with Toyan and Stirsky and other people in the group. I mean, like Jindrzyk Honzel, the theater uh, director and uh, theorist, was also was a member of both groups. Um, he was both a, um, a founding surrealist and a uh, member of the Prague Linguistic School and wrote a you know, semiotic uh, things about theater. And so, you know, again, this is something that Toyin is just in the midst of. Uh, so I don't think it really matters whether she sat there and read the texts, she was going to be in the middle of it, be thinking about it, being, you know, probably influencing some of it through her artwork. And now it's a challenge for any interview, even on the New Books Network, to describe artworks visually, even as the book itself is really a magnificent production from the University of Pittsburgh. It includes a generous selection of colored plates, black and white illustrations accompanying the text throughout. So here I would like to ask you how you chose the works that you did to reproduce in the book, and also to ask further whether there was a, fa a fairly stable personal vi visual language for Toyin that you felt able to represent with the selections. You mentioned in the book, childhood is a nightmare, emptiness and insubstantiality, with headlessness, ghosts. You have your idea of a late imagery of desires, uh, shadows and spaces. 
So just to recap that question, uh, I'd like to ask you just how you picked what you showed in the book, what you analyzed, and also invite you to tell us a little bit about one painting or artwork in particular that you felt really helped you uh, understand Toyin and helped to uh, create this book. Okay, well, um, in terms of, of how I chose things, how I chose images to put in the book, uh, part of it depended on what I had access to. Uh, and the process of seeking the uh, images was a, a dreadfully long and, and rather painful one. Um, on the one hand, um, I was very lucky in that uh, um, the collector Mary Cullen was very kind to me and allowed me great access to her collection of uh, books and ephemera and, and so forth that she had uh, by Toyin and the Prague Surrealists, and she was fine with me photographing and scanning materials. Uh, also, um, a collector in New York uh, who works with a friend of mine, um, I was able to get access to, again, uh, some of the printed materials. Uh, and, and I also was able to, you know, work with libraries and archives for um, book illustrations and, and things that were, you know, maybe not the you know original drawing but the way it was but the way something was was shown in a in a publication in Toyan's lifetime um various museums kindly uh gave me digital copies of uh of artworks that I was able to uh, to use and I also uh, took some photographs of my own in museums but uh ultimately it kind of came down to um wanting to give a wanting to give at least some overview of the richness of Toyin's artwork, uh, that on the one hand, the book is, is more tilted toward uh, the Czech context that Toyin, uh, you know, is, is kind of formed by, and, uh, and also focusing more on the, the idea of eroticism, but I didn't want to leave out other aspects of Toyin's work. So I, you know, I tried to include you know, a, a variety of different media, so not just paintings, but also book illustrations and prints and collage. And I, I wanted, I wanted to, partly because there's not really much of anything else written in English at this point, or at least that's available in English-speaking countries. Uh, I mean, you really have to to travel to the Czech Republic to to get some of what is in in English. Um, I really wanted to try and give readers a even a broader sense of, of what Toyin's work looked like than necessarily what I was focusing on in the text. So yeah, I ended up having more images than uh, technically I was supposed to, and therefore the book is, I'm afraid, more expensive than we originally planned, but such is life. Um, I, I am very happy with, with what University of Pittsburgh Press was able to do with the images that, that I did collect, even though we were not making a coffee table book. And just to return again to those artworks, is there one in particular that you think might help kind of work as Oh, in that's right, yes. Um, one of the works that, uh, that I think is a really nice one to discuss, even though it's a relatively late work, but that pulls together a lot of the things that I, that I talk about at different times in the book and, and themes that are significant for Toyin is a work from 1966. So when she's been in Paris for almost 20 years, uh, that is uh, alternately called Le Paravant or The Folding Screen. And this is an oil painting with some collage. It hasn't got a lot of collage, but it's got a little bit of collage uh, in that it's, it's showing, you know, the kind of folding screen that used to be, I think, fairly common for people to dress behind and that people still occasionally have in their homes more as a decorative element. And we see this very ghostly, shadowy figure that is relatively feminine looking, um, although not necessarily, um, but, but more feminine than masculine looking um, in the center. Uh, faceless, more like a kind of a, a white smoke or whitish smoke or, or fog. 
that is clothed in these sort of leopard or cheetah um, beings and is uh, either taking off or putting on a pair of green gloves. And the, uh, the feline figure in the lower part of the image uh, has a collaged human woman's mouth with bright red lipstick kind of almost snarling at us. And then off to the sides, we have these two shadowy figures that are more, you know, again, they're not defined as masculine or feminine, but, but we can probably think of them as perhaps more masculine because they don't have any kind of feminine uh, symbolism on them. You know, they're not wearing gloves. We can't tell what kind of clothing they have. There's no sign of breasts, etc. And then up at the very top, we've got this collage of a pair of mating butterflies. So it's a, a beautifully mysterious work. Um, it's very, uh, it, it relates very well to this period of the 60s in Toyin's work where um, there are a lot of these ghostly figures, particularly these, these sort of evanescent kind of female figures floating about um, and use of animal imagery that often connects with the female. So um, I think it's, it's just a wonderful painting. And it's uh, one of my favorites, although I have a lot of favorites. And uh, it's one that, uh, that can be seen at the Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville Paris uh, in Paris. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's on display at the moment or not, but uh, in, in fact, it's probably, it's probably uh, circulating with the, uh, the Toyin show that, uh, that's currently in Germany but I'm not sure of that. Um, at any rate, it's, it's really quite a, a uh, misty, mysterious, haunting sort of evocation. So I, I encourage people to look for that among other, other exciting works. Now, one question I had as well, drawing up my list, reading your book and looking at the book subtitle, Toying in the Surrealist Erotic, I also wondered if her career wouldn't also help us to distinguish between various sorts of eroticism, almost if we have our avant-garde, one proceeding after another, overlapping, taking from it. We also have eroticisms kind of floating around in the background. Again, I drew up my list. We have a Czech eroticism, a Fonda Siegler eroticism, a Habsburg eroticism, surrealist eroticism, French eroticism, and finally a sort of personal eroticism, which I think came out uh, in your description of that one painting. And do these categories or even labels help us to really kind of understand different phases of Toyn's career? Or is that really just push a historian pushing too much into art history? I think there maybe you're pushing a little a little far. Um, I think I think different artists have certainly their own erotic directions. Not to say that those can't be culturally specific, because obviously they are. I mean, we could, there's certainly things that I would associate with fantasy eroticism, but. Um, no, I, th I think Toyin has a very, very individual uh, approach to eroticism. That it's it's very, um, very polymorphous in the Freudian sense. And of course, Toyin was familiar with Freud's ideas. Um, you know, it's it's not specifically. It, it's certainly not a male gaze, although the female figure is certainly very visible in it. But I don't know that it's necessarily a specifically lesbian gaze um it's i think it's very mutable um and yeah i think i'll leave that there and perhaps let uh let people after me uh contemplate that particular question a little further and i think there is a point here that you elaborate in the book in that she does certain things that her male colleagues don't um would you care to comment a bit further on that yeah, um, certainly in terms of uh, the way in which she is working with eroticism, um, there's there's a lot of phallic imagery. Now in Czech, in the Czech context, there is a certain amount of phallic imagery among male artists, but not for public consumption so much. It's more kind of you know like their private um, you know caricatures and, and so forth that that do to some extent get published in Stierski's brief 
briefly published journal Erotitska uh, Revue, where he was exploring different kinds of eroticism. So, I mean, you know, you have, for instance, um, you know, sketches of, uh, you know, like a guy with a violin bow playing on his penis and so forth. So, but she's, play, she's playing with the, the phallic imagery in a, I think in a, a different playful kind of manner. Um, and, and then I think she also really gives us much more vaginal imagery. Um, I mean, the phallic imagery really jumps out it's very obvious, but the more you look at, especially the later work, um, there's, there's, I think, a, a very strong uh, tendency to explore vaginal imagery in ways that are not, they're no longer sort of what we might think of as verging on the pornographic or whatever, that they're very, um, they're, they're very surreal, very, um, you know, associated with these phantoms and so forth. So I think those are some things that she does a bit differently. Now, one great hope for this interview as we start to begin to draw to a close is that it brings Toyn to the attention of English speakers in America, other art historians. Well, I think it's also fair to say that there's been a resurgence of interest in her generation, both in the Czech Republic with the advent, as you mentioned, of a retrospective of her work, as well as her generation more broadly speaking here in English, works like Derek Sayers, Prague, Apple of the 20th century, Thomas Ort's Art and Life in Modernist Prague come to mind. So how would you describe uh, Toyn's work as appealing to audiences today as much as to historians, art historians like yourself? Um, I do think that there's, there's been a strong interest. And I think one thing that's happening is that as people, uh, for instance, art students, uh, and many of my students are arts, art majors, um, I, don't, I have some students who are art history majors, but it's more studio art majors. Um, they're discovering not just the Czech modernists and the surrealists, but I also show them, for instance, some of the Polish modernists and Hungarian modernists, and they're just blown away. They're like, this is, this is you know, amazing. Uh, I, I really like this stuff. Um, and I think this is something that is, that is definitely happening in the English speaking world as more and more scholars and museums are getting a handle on some of this, this work and these artists that had kind of gotten lost behind the former Iron Curtain. That, uh, you know, there, there are linguistic reasons that, you know, scholarship from some of the countries like Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, or Hungary, or Poland, uh, were not really, you know, we, we weren't getting getting a lot of scholarship out of those areas in languages that most of us could read until more recently. And now with scholars, you know, as, as English becomes more of, I hate to say it, a lingua franca, uh, it just seems terrible to say anything but French is a lingua franca, but, uh, but that is the role English currently has. And so scholars from a multitude of countries are writing in English, but also um, Anglophone scholars are able increasingly to, to read in the languages of uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And so uh, there is being more of an understanding uh, in terms of museum exhibitions. So for instance, places like MoMA in New York or the Tate Modern uh, to be inclusive. And with those of us who are art historians that are writing about some of these areas and some of these artists, along with the museum exhibitions, I think this really helps bring, um, bring some of this temporarily forgotten work into the public eye and people discover it and are excited by it. So I, I think it's a very exciting time. And I think there will be, you know, an increase in, you know, scholarship, especially as more people are learning the languages I mean, like, for instance, we have a lot of, uh, you know, what we would refer to as heritage speakers of, of, you know, whether it's Russian or Czech or Polish, whatnot, uh, who are also, you know, totally fluent in English and who are interested in exploring the art and culture of their, you know, their, their parents or grandparents' countries. And so I think we, I think we can look forward to a, a really interesting future of, lots more research. 
Well, let's hope that your book is really the entrance point for a lot of people to discover this world and even worlds that you sketch out within it. And now to conclude, having finished this wonderful monograph, can you tell us a little bit about your current research? Okay, well, um, in terms of research, I'm, I'm doing a couple of things. On the one hand, I've been working on an anthology of translations of Czech modernist texts between about 1900 and 1950 on art, uh, aesthetics, architecture, visual culture. Um, these are things that have been already translated, but that you would kind of have to be a specialist to know that they were there and go find them. I'm also making some improvements in some of the translations and uh, annotating them. So this is something that I'm, I'm currently looking for a publisher for. I think it would, it's something that could make a really, really nice contribution for people who are not specialists in Czech modernism to become more familiar with it and use it in their teaching. Um, I'm also uh, starting to look a little bit more into Toyin and the esoteric, uh, which has been quite fun. I'm not expecting to do a book on that, but, but uh, doing, doing, as I mentioned, a conference paper on it. And uh, also done a, a lot of work on, on Czech visual culture that might end up being a book. And then not as a researcher, but uh, in the other part of my life, I am doing novels. And so I have a novel coming out next year from Regal House. So that is, that is also a big part of what's coming up for me. And I do wanna also, um, you know, kind of give a shout out to all of those younger researchers who are kind of coming up as, as new voices in the scholarship on Central and Eastern Europe, on surrealism, um, on, on a lot of things that have been neglected before. Um, and I'm, for instance, I'm currently reading um, Amy Hale's book on the British surrealist, uh, Ethel Calhoun. Um, we've also got a couple of, uh, you know, um, graduate students working on uh, Toyan topics, and I'm really looking forward to hearing some of their work in the very near future. And uh, I th I th as I was saying just a moment ago, I think the future is looking really bright for, for people doing research. I don't know whether the future is, is bright for job prospects for people. That's a whole other problem. Um, but, uh, but so long as a person is able to, um, to get some amount of support and funding and so forth. I think there are a lot of areas that uh, I'm really, I, I think there, there can be a lot more research on Toyin, especially looking at some of her French um, colleagues and context. And I think that's been the, the new exhibition that was in Prague over the summer and is now in, in Hamburg and will be in Paris. That, has some very interesting work on the Paris period. So I, I'm hoping to see more of that in the future. So with this wonderful interview then, I would like to recommend to all New Book Network listeners, uh, this, this is a fantastic book from Professor Carla Hubner on the magnetically fascinating artist Toyin. Thank you for your time, Professor Hubner, and thank you for listening. And thank you. Thank you.